Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1989, Patrick Swayze was hot property. Two years earlier, Dirty Dancing, a low-budget film in which Swayze played Johnny Castle, a smouldering dance instructor, had been a surprise hit and mamboed him to international stardom. Roadhouse, released that May, is a more obscure entry in his filmography. Swayze stars as a bouncer hired to clean up a bar in small-town Missouri who makes an enemy of a corrupt local businessman. A disappointment at the box office Roadhouse has since found cult status as a film that's so bad, it's good. Swayze spends much of the movie brawling with the bar's drunken clientele, which is why he made an unexpected cameo in the closing arguments of the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Prosecutors showed a still from Roadhouse. Swayze squares off against an assailant with the caption, The defendant brought a gun to a fistfight. Rittenhouse's lawyers argued that he shot three men because he was in danger. Prosecutors used Swayze's image to say that arming himself with an AR-15 was disproportionate. By carrying a gun, the then 17-year-old created the danger. The jury needs to decide which version of events is true. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what does the Kyle Rittenhouse case tell us about gun culture and race in America? The bare facts are not disputed. In August 2020, Kyle Rittenhouse shot dead two people and injured a third during protests following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, an African-American man in Kenosha, Wisconsin. What these facts mean is contested. To many on the right, Mr. Rittenhouse is an American hero who volunteered to protect a car dealership from violent rioters and fired only in self-defense. And to the left, he's a reckless, trigger-happy domestic terrorist with ties to the far right. Both Donald Trump and Joe Biden have weighed in. How did the Carl Rittenhouse case become such a Rorschach test for American partisanship? Hi, it's John here. About an hour after we first published this episode, Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty on all counts. I think that was a surprise to everybody who's been watching this case, or at least to most people who watched it. Many legal analysts thought that Mr. Rittenhouse would be found guilty on some of the lesser charges, but the juries found him innocent on all counts. National Guard troops have been sent to Kenosha in case there's unrest there in the wake of the verdict. As you'll hear me say, we recorded this before we knew the verdict, but I actually think given the topic of the conversation, which is 
the evolution of gun culture in America, how it intersects with race and also with self-defense laws, I think the conversation still feels very relevant and interesting. So I hope you enjoy the episode. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, let's start with you. What's going on in New York? What's the word? It's a beautiful day in New York. The children are getting vaccinated. My son got his first shot, so things are on the up and up. I'm glad to hear it. And I can hear some taxi horns honking outside your apartment, which suggests New York is getting back to normal. John, how are you doing? I'm well. I have been in uh, D.C. this week. I got COVID boosted yesterday, so I'm currently subsisting on a mixture of caffeine and Tylenol. Um, But D.C. is good. You know, Janet's yelling. Tony's blinking. It's a very active city. Did you just make that up on the spot? I pre-gamed it a little bit. (laughs) Do you? I want to just... There's a subcategory of people is when they're daydreaming, they think of puns having (laughs) to do with the governor of the various central banks and treasury secretary. What else do you have up your sleeve? Um, I don't know. I was hoping for an all-present participle cabinet, you know, so you'd have a defense secretary named Lloyd Bauman, <laughs> a HUD secretary named Petey Bilden. Uh, they're a lot better than my jokes. My seven-year-old recently <laughs> told me that my dad jokes were so bad, they were practically toxic. <laughs> well, as we mentioned in last week's podcast, we've all been watching the Carl Rittenhouse case closely, as lots of other people have in America. And though we're recording this discussion before the verdict comes, and the verdict may have changed by the time you listen to this, I don't think that's going to matter. Because I think one of the things that's so fascinating about the Rittenhouse case is how the different parts of the media in America have interpreted it in such different ways. We're about to hear a few clips from left-leaning media and right-leaning media. And the first one does contain a swear word. So if that makes you uncomfortable, or if you're listening with children, then just skip ahead 30 seconds or so. Okay, see you on the other side. Some guy decided to drive to Kenosha with his militia buddies to protect a business and apparently ended up shooting three people and killing two. But don't worry, the business is okay. And let me tell you something. No one drives into a city with guns because they love someone else's business that much. That's some bullshit. No one has ever thought, oh, it's my solemn duty to pick up a rifle and protect that TJ Maxx. They do it because they're hoping to shoot someone. This kid who was a, you know, a fire cadet, a lifeguard and a police explorer, he was a kid who went there to clean graffiti. They have video of it. He went there to help people. He was a medic. He was CPR trained. And he finds himself in this situation. He's got a gun. And should we really be surprised? The 17 year old Proud Boys fan believed that he had the perfect right to cross state lines and protect property with the AR-15 he got because he thought it was cool. How shocked are we that 17-year-olds with rifles decided they had to maintain order when no one else would? Everyone could see what was happening in Kenosha. It was getting crazier by the hour. There was a 12-year-old black kid named Tamir Rice who got shot and killed because he had a toy gun. And so I think a lot of people are looking at this case and wondering how it is possible that a 17-year-old can be roaming the streets with with an AR-15 and be handed water. Everything about race. He shot three white guys. Kyle Rittenhouse is a white guy. If Kyle is ruled to be not guilty, his family should immediately file suit against every mainstream media outlet, the ones you just saw on your screen there, left-wing politician, 
each one of them, and all the pundits, including the President of the United States, by the way, that denounced Kyle and called him a white supremacist when there is zero evidence of any such behavior. It amounts to defamation. That was Trevor Noah on Comedy Central's The Daily Show, Janine Piero on Fox News, Joy Reid on MSNBC, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, Anna Novaro on ABC's The View, and Grant Stinchfield on Newsmax. So Charlotte, we've heard all those takes from different ends of the political spectrum in America. What actually happened in this case? Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old, crossed state lines to go to Kenosha, Wisconsin, because he apparently wanted to help defend a business, a company called CarSource. And he did so with a military-style semi-automatic rifle. And then what happened is that at some point, Rittenhouse got into some sort of altercation. Rittenhouse started to run. One person raised a gun into the air and fired. Rittenhouse then spun around and shot Joseph Rosenbaum four times and killed him. Anthony Huber had a skateboard. He takes his skateboard and tries to hit Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse fires and kills him. A third person has a gun. Rittenhouse shoots that person in the arm. John, before we get those wider questions about American politics and and gun culture, what were the legal issues that this case brought up? Well, Rittenhouse himself faces five serious charges. There was one charge that was dismissed, possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. It turns out that in Wisconsin, if you're under 18, but over 16, you are allowed to carry a long barreled rifle, which is what he was carrying. But the five charges, I guess, in rough order of seriousness are first degree intentional murder. That stems from the death of Anthony Huber, who swung a skateboard at his head. The prosecution argues that Rittenhouse intended to kill Huber. The second charge is attempted intentional murder, and that stems from his shooting of Gage Grosskreutz, who's the guy who was shot but survived. Again, both of those require intent. The other charges are reckless homicide, and that's in the case of Joseph Rosenbaum, who is the first man Rittenhouse shot. That does not require that the prosecution show intent, only that they show that he caused Rosenbaum's death and showed an utter disregard for human life. And then he has two other counts of, of recklessly endangering safety. So those are the five charges. And in essence, what the two sides argued was this. The defense argued that he was in reasonable fear for his life, that Joseph Rosenbaum grabbed his gun, that Rittenhouse worried that Rosenbaum would take his gun and shoot him. In the case of Anthony Huber, Huber was advancing on him with a weapon, a skateboard. In the case of of Grosskreutz, Grosskreutz had a pistol at the time. So they're arguing essentially self-defense, that Rittenhouse was defending himself. The prosecution argues that his fear was unreasonable, that no reasonable person, that considering the totality of the circumstances that night, no reasonable person would have done what Rittenhouse did. No reasonable person, no reasonable 17-year-old would have brought a military-style weapon into an armed and violent situation, essentially, that the situation was exacerbated by Rittenhouse and his gun being there, and that therefore the claim to self-defense does not apply. So in essence, the facts of the case are not disputed, right? The facts of the case are obvious. What is in dispute is Rittenhouse's state of mind. And so, Charlotte, the case turns on some fairly narrow legal questions, but obviously raises much bigger questions about guns in America, about gun culture, about politics, uh, about race, too. Right. So there's the narrow question of whether Rittenhouse believed that his life is in danger. 
And there are much, much bigger questions, which are, why is it so easy for people to get guns, even young people? Is that problematic? Is it particularly dangerous when there's a vibrant culture of vigilante justice? Should police, when they see someone like Rittenhouse, who are clearly promoting a a kind of vigilante justice, should police see those people as allies or people worthy of concern? And I think the answer to all of those questions really varies depending on which side of the political aisle you sit. And you heard in these clips, various members of the media, both on right and left, really seizing on this because this trial raises all of those fascinating and frankly dangerous questions in which each side sees themselves as a victim. That on the right, there is a perception that America is under threat by specific and vague forces and individuals have the right to do whatever they want to try to defend their homeland, essentially. And on the left, you see consternation and horror that these types of incidents continue to occur. This is not a trial that's happening in isolation. There are other instances where people claim self-defense, where people claim a real rationale to bear arms and protect themselves or their property that uh, has been problematic. So all of these different swirling debates are contained in the vessel that is the Rittenhouse trial. And to some degree, whatever the verdict may be, those questions persist. And the, the, the issue of whether at that moment, Kyle Rittenhouse feared for his life is a much, much more narrow question that will be decided by the jury. Um, These broader questions, however, persist. I think there's also, especially for people on the left, a racial justice angle to this too, right? A lot of people on the left feel, justifiably in my view, that if Kyle Rittenhouse were a 17-year-old African-American who went into a dangerous situation armed with a gun and shot a few people, that this case would be very, very different. Yes, that's right. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We're going to go back to the origins of a notorious self-defense law. First, though, the usual reminder, if you want unlimited access to The Economist website or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, then you need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. In this week's US pages, there's a great piece about Mackenzie Scott and her record-breaking philanthropy. And there's also a fascinating piece about Puerto Rico, and how an impoverished island battered by natural disasters managed to handle COVID-19 better than the United States. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. In Tampa, Florida, in November 2011, a moment of road rage turned deadly. Alcis Viardi's Polanco and Watson Adelson got out of their vehicles and started brawling. Polanco grabbed an ice pick from his car and stabbed Adelson in the arm and head. Three weeks later, Adelson died. Prosecutors never pursued criminal charges against Polanco because of a Florida law known as Stand Your Ground. Created in 2005, It meant citizens who reasonably believed their lives to be threatened were given the right to meet force with force, including deadly force, without needing to try and retreat first. The law even held in public places, and if, like Adelson, the attacker was unarmed. 
Florida State Senator Dennis Baxley said a series of hurricanes inspired him to propose the bill. Many people were trying to protect their property. Uh, there was a gentleman out in the northwest panhandle of Florida who was living on his property, he and his wife in an RV, uh, to make sure they could protect their property, which was open to looting. And uh, during that time, he was uh, accosted by a gentleman entering their house during the night, their RV. Uh, he did uh, respond to protect himself against this home invasion. Uh, it was a number of months before he knew whether he would be prosecuted for acting, and uh, he did fire a firearm and this individual was shot and died. We agreed that that should not be the situation in Florida, that if a law-abiding citizen is protecting their home or their car or someplace that they have a right to be uh, from a, an attack of a uh, perpetrator and they do act to stop an act of violence, that we as a government should stand by them and they should not be prosecuted. The governor who signed it into law was Jeb Bush. He heralded the bill to the National Rifle Association in 2015, a few months before announcing he was running for president. In Florida, you can defend yourself anywhere you have a legal right to be if you reasonably believe you're in danger of death or injury or rape or kidnapping. This is a sensible law that other states have adopted because you shouldn't have to choose between being attacked or going to jail. It's no surprise that an NRA crowd cheered. After all, they had helped to craft the law. 14 states followed Florida within a year, and more have since. But Stand Your Ground attracted little national attention until another deadly attack in the state. It is a story that no one can stop talking about, the shooting of Trayvon Martin. It seems in February 2012, George Zimmerman, a Neighborhood Watch volunteer, called 911 to report 17-year-old Martin. Hey, we've had some break-ins in my neighborhood and there's a real suspicious guy. Despite the operator telling him not to, Zimmerman and his gun followed the teenager, who was armed only with some candy and iced tea for his younger brother. And a scuffle ended in Martin being fatally shot. Although Zimmerman's lawyers didn't directly use Stand Your Ground as a defense, the police delayed arresting him for weeks because of the law, and the jury was told to consider his Stand Your Ground rights. He was acquitted of second-degree murder, igniting protests, the Black Lives Matter movement, and fury over the law. The then Attorney General, Eric Holder, joined the chorus of anger. We must examine laws that take this further by eliminating the common sense and age-old requirement that people who feel threatened have a duty to retreat outside their home if they can do so safely. We must stand our ground to ensure that our laws reduce violence and take a hard look at laws that contribute to more violence than they prevent. In 2005, critics had warned the bill would result in unnecessary deaths. Numerous studies appear to vindicate those fears. Soon after the law took effect in Florida, there was a sudden and sustained 24% jump in the monthly homicide rate. In states without a stand-your-ground law, over the same time period, those rates remained flat suggesting that a nationwide crime wave was not to blame for the abrupt increase. A study from the Urban Institute think tank found the defence was much more effective when used by white than by black Americans. Some Florida state legislators tried to repeal it earlier this year, but the attempt failed. 
Stand your ground laws are troubling, but they're also puzzling. The legal concept of self-defense already exists. If someone's life is in danger and it's impossible to retreat, then using deadly force is permitted. Killing someone should be a last resort. Stand your ground laws fix a problem that doesn't really exist. Wisconsin doesn't have a stand your ground law, and that didn't harm Kyle Rittenhouse's defense. So what really is the point of them? I think it's worth going back to the history of what's so distinctly American about both self-defense laws and the culture of vigilante justice. So there are these two deep currents in American history, right? So in newer states, uh, in the South, in the West, there were settlers and there was no real rule of law in the conventional sense. There weren't jails or courts. If you committed a crime, you could literally just run away across these vast landscape. And there were groups of vigilante men, and they really were men, who went after criminals, sometimes because they were responding to a crime, sometimes because they were responding to just a threat, and often just a perceived threat. And so notoriously, lynchings, of course, are the most extreme example of a kind of vigilante justice. And this racialized justice is, it's not made up. These are the origins of this culture. And with the history of self-defense, it dates right back to the idea of defending yourself in one's home, the castle doctrine. That was something borrowed from England. But you also saw after Reconstruction, toward the end of the 19th century, there were court cases that allowed white men to fight back and kill even when they weren't in their homes. And so you have to kind of think about the evolution of this culture really stretching back and the origins of how vigilante justice and self-defense laws and how court cases were settled in instances of claimed self-defense to understand the current situation today. I think that if you look at the Ahmad Arbor case, which is perhaps the most extreme example of this, there were people who thought that Mr. Arbery was responsible for break-ins in the neighborhood. They chased after him. And then they claim self-defense because they shot him when he tried to seize their guns. Presumably, Arbery himself would probably claim self-defense. Um, he's, of course, dead and not around in order to make that case. But you see how these claims can be perverted to really try to defend one's innocence in the face of indefensible actions. I'm glad Charlotte brought up the Ahmad Arbery case. What strikes me about that case, especially in relation to the Rittenhouse, is that in the case of Arbery, he was unarmed, and the people who killed him claimed self-defense. Rittenhouse's case, he was armed and claimed self-defense. So it just seems in both of these cases, the tacit argument of the defense is that our guys were defending civilization. They were defending order. They're defending what's right. And therefore, what they did was right, even though in Rittenhouse's case, all of the killings stemmed from his wandering into a dangerous situation with a gun. And even though in the case of Ahmad Arbery, he was unarmed, he didn't break into anyone's house. But the argument of the defense is that just because defendants were worried about break-ins, that suspicion was enough to justify what they did in this case. You know, it's really interesting. In Wisconsin and more than a dozen other states, the burden rests on the prosecution to show the defendant wasn't reasonable in claiming self-defense. The presumption is a presumption of fear, a presumption that the defendant was reasonable. So that's a much higher burden of proof, right, for the prosecution to try to prove. And so you can see in the Rittenhouse trial just how easy it is to claim self-defense. And if you go all the way down the rabbit hole into gun culture, these men who have killed using their firearms, 
haven't done a bad thing. They've actually done a virtuous thing because, as, as you say, John, they're upholding civilization. There's this idea that civilization is always close to collapse. You can't rely on the government to uphold it. And the last line of defense you know, is a virtuous man with a firearm. All right, thank you, guys. We'll be back in a moment to hear from our colleague Daniel Knowles, who's been covering the Rittenhouse case. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Daniel Knowles has been in Kenosha covering the trial for The Economist. And he told me that the city isn't living up to the journalistic cliché. I wouldn't say the city was on edge. There were maybe half a dozen protesters standing outside the courthouse itself. The trial was very busy, but it wasn't completely full. I was able to get a seat despite arriving relatively late. And if you went around the town, people were definitely watching it. I explored the city, but in every every bar and every restaurant and takeaway place kind of had it on the television, the local news showing the trial. So people were watching it, but on edge and kind of ready to burst, absolutely not. There were far more journalists watching this than there were kind of people ready to kick off. So you weren't sitting in the courtroom for the full trial, but you did watch most of it. What were the moments that stood out for you? Oh, well, there were several. So I think in particular, there was a moment, in fact, there were two moments in the closing arguments, both linked, that really struck me, in that both lawyers, both the prosecutor and the defence lawyer, took out the gun, the gun that was used in the shooting, and kind of gestured with it. The prosecutor, Thomas Bingham, used it to show what he thought that Rittenhouse was doing with it. And then later, the defence lawyer also was trying to to demonstrate why the gun wasn't used in the way the prosecution alleged. So I, I just thought that kind of the gun being pointed in the courtroom was just a striking, you know, and trying to decide on this, this few seconds was a very... Uh, striking moment in a trial that's about so much more than just a few seconds. Part of the reason it attracted so much interest was it played into a much larger drama or story in in American politics. You know, there was a Republican-Democratic divide on this case and also, obviously, a divide about gun culture and also race. What you've had in the kind of past decade or so in America is a real sort of... um, growth in this idea of open carry culture and people bringing their guns not only just out and about with them and and carrying them on the street but bringing them to quite volatile situations like protests as well and American law I, I spoke to two academics at Duke University about this is actually not very clear on what is acceptable in public use of guns you know on the one hand It is legal in most states to carry certainly kind of rifles and and often handguns as well openly in the street, in public. On the other hand, pointing a weapon at somebody or even just gesturing with a weapon at somebody can be seen as threatening. It can can often be equivalent to a felony assault in many states. 
And so you can sort of carry your gun around, but then the law does not really account for how people sort of perceive your gun. And this case turned on perceptions of guns and gun rights to a large degree. And on the one hand, you have a political lobby which basically thinks that the more guns, the better, and that people taking out their guns are sort of responsible and responsible gun owners are, are, have, a, have a duty to kind of protect law and order. And on the other hand, you have people who think that by taking a gun into such a volatile kind of situation, like a, a protest or, or really a, a riot, you, you might say that they're actually just, that's provocation in itself. And if they get into trouble, that using their gun to protect themselves from a situation that they created by taking guns into the situation in the first place should not be protected completely by the law of self-defense. So I think that's been why it's so controversial. And then you add into that the kind of racial elements, which is that partly that it happened in the aftermath of a Black Lives Matter protest, which, which itself was prompted by a black man with a knife being shot several times by police, or allegedly with a knife. And I think an awful lot of people basically don't think that a black teenager carrying an assault rifle would have been able to shoot three people and walk home um, and hand himself into the police. They just think they wouldn't get away with that. And you add to that, there's another case going on, a trial that's that's still underway, the case of Ahmed Albury in, in Georgia, who was a young black man who was shot by three white men um, who evidently thought that he was a burglar or something, um, chased him down. And similarly to the case in Kenosha, the argument hinges on this idea that the men with the guns were threatened because they could have had their guns taken off them in a sort of off them in a physical struggle, so they sort of had to shoot. And I think that a lot of people think that that logic creates space for people to just murder people and claim self-defense. Daniel, one of the academics you spoke to for the story you wrote this week said that America sometimes finds itself looking to specific high-profile trials as a way of trying to settle contestable social issues that the political system has failed to grapple with. And really, irrespective of the verdict, which I don't think has settled the argument on this, that's what happened in this case. The big question is basically, when is it allowed to use your gun to protect yourself? And when is it allowed to carry a gun out in public? And, and also, what are the kind of rights or duties of people who aren't police officers or firefighters or whatever to protect their communities and take action on crime? In the Rittenhouse case in Kenosha, he had gone to protect a car dealership from rioters. There's just a huge divide. I think some people basically think that it's a kind of responsibility of good gun owners to go out and make the country safer and the other half think that that's insane and that people should be very careful with their guns and keep them to themselves and, and not be out trying to be vigilantes. And that, that's just a very real divide in American society that the law is not especially clear on and that any jury is probably going to be divided on too. And it just means we're going to have more and more of these cases. And it's not only in cases where people are killed. You know, you had the case in Missouri, also during the Black Lives Matter protest last year, where a wealthy couple of, of lawyers brandished guns and pointed them at protesters who were on their street and ended up being pardoned by the governor. They were actually at the Rittenhouse uh, trial this past week, making a show of support for him. And... Uh, if people are 
are out pointing guns. Other people think that that, that is unacceptable. That, that's, a, that's a big political problem that's difficult to settle with any court case. So, Charlotte, what do you think we've learned from this case, both about guns and about race in America? I think there are a couple of things that this case is a reminder of, but not necessarily new lessons, unfortunately. One is that when you have a situation in which there are people with guns, it can turn deadly very, very quickly. Another thing is that it just is very hard to prosecute those who claim self-defense. As we said before, you have to try to prove a person's state of mind, and that burden is on the prosecution, um, not on the defense. I think that there's a bigger question, which is very much in the news now and will be in the news next year when the Supreme Court issues its decision. But there's a big case before the Supreme Court about whether governments can restrict ordinary people from carrying guns around. Um, And it's the first big gun case in more than a decade. And so you have an America phenomenon where people are likely to take justice into their own hands, and they're likely to do so armed. And the outcome of this case will be hugely important for individuals' ability to carry guns around. Charlotte, I think this case is a New York case, right, where we both live, which has some strict gun control laws, but it's part of a broader trend away from restrictions, right? Yeah, I think when you're sitting in the Northeast or sitting in New York, it's easy to forget that New York really stands out for being one of only a few states with strict gun restrictions. Um, There are only five states that now prohibit openly carrying a gun, and more than 30 states let you carry a handgun without a license or a permit. And it used to be pretty common, actually, for states to limit the right to carry guns around, even going back to the founders, if if you look at some of the amicus briefs that have been filed in this case before the Supreme Court, Um, different conservatives actually argue that going back to the founders, there were restrictions on guns. Um, But it's really more recently that these limits have been eased. It's really over the past three decades. And you see that this creates problems. You know, with open carry laws, there's evidence that just carrying around a gun raises the risk of conflict. I think we certainly saw that in the Rittenhouse case. It understandably puts people on edge. Um, Law enforcement has trouble distinguishing a credible threat from someone who's just going for a stroll with a gun, as they're lawfully allowed to do. Um, so this can be this can be really tricky. In New York, um, New York has a law in this instance that requires people asking for a license to carry a concealed weapon outside the home. They have to show that they have a real need for self-defense. For instance, someone who works in a bank who's transporting cash, something like that. And the people who filed the case were two men, two upstate men, along with a subsidiary of the NRA. And the justices in the trial, they asked all kinds of questions about other instances that might be legitimate claims of self-defense. For instance, someone who is working late in Manhattan and is traveling home on the subway late at night. You know, maybe they have a reason to carry a gun for self-defense. I think those of us who are on the subway um, might feel a little nervous about the idea that anyone who's on the subway can claim a legitimate right to self-defense and so therefore be armed. I think that you see, you know, Paul Clement is someone who argued on behalf of the upstate men. He's a really seasoned conservative litigator. Um, I heard him, I, I was in the court when he was arguing against the Affordable Care Act. And the way that he pivots in oral arguments, it's like watching a skater on ice. He's just really agile. And, and he argues that the First Amendment 
right um, includes a right to carry a gun outside the home, and then New York is too restrictive. And I guess my question is that by so enshrining that Second Amendment, you infringe on other constitutional rights, um, like the right to is it more is it more important to be able to carry a gun, or do you infringe on the right to the First Amendment, the right of people to assemble, the right of free speech? Um, protesters in Charlottesville in 2017. They were carrying guns to protest against the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue. And there's a suit now in which those defendants claim they were acting in self-defense. It's just, I mean, it's this big question about whether by enshrining the Second Amendment in this way, you really infringe on other rights and you erode public safety. Yeah, it seems almost certain that if the Supreme Court rules the way they are likely to rule, which is basically that shall carry becomes effectively the law of the land, that a lot more people will be armed in public and that therefore a lot more people will be killed. And I think a lot more people will be armed. I mean, if you look at the polling on why gun owners own guns over the long term, the past few decades, it's changed a great deal. So if you go back, say, 30 years, majority of gun owners said they own guns to go hunting. Now, a clear majority of gun owners say they own guns for self-defense. I think that's why among gun owners, there's so much support for removing these kinds of restrictions for the court ruling in the way it's likely to rule in in New York. Because for a gun owner, this becomes about your right to defend yourself and and your family. And the government, by restricting your rights to carry guns wherever you want to, onto the subway, into a protest, wherever, is making you and your family unsafe. Yeah, I think that the combination of the spread of guns, I think the combination of the spread of that justification for carrying guns for self-defense, the removal of gun restrictions, the gra- or I think a combination of that mentality, that is you carry a gun to defend yourself because you're always under threat everywhere at every time, the Supreme Court's skepticism of gun restrictions and the proliferation of the sort of self-defense arguments that we're hearing in the in the in the Arbery and Rittenhouse cases really pretend they, those three things together really pretend a worrying future in which people are armed and on edge everywhere. Well, that's a rather depressing place to end. But luckily, before I let you guys go, we have a quiz. So get your heads in quiz mode. The Economist used the phrase stand your ground in a December 2001 piece on unusual holidays. Writing about wildlife in Zimbabwe, which was then in the midst of political violence, we advised readers to never run from a carnivore, stand your ground, and you will probably live. So my obscure question is, how many US presidents have made official visits to Zimbabwe? Hmm. One? Yeah, I think it would be Teddy Roosevelt only. Um, are you thinking he would have gone there on an official visit or, or trying to shoot some exotic beast? I think he's one of these guys that tries to mix work with play. He has a pretense of a business <laughs> trip, but actually he's just trying to go on holiday. My guess is one, and it's Ronald Reagan for sort of Cold War reasons. Uh, those are both excellent guesses. Apparently the answer is none. Zimbabwean leaders have come to the US, though. Robert Mugabe was the first. He came in 1980. Question two, a little less obscure. FDR was the first sitting president to visit Africa. So, Charlotte, I think you get a a point for that, perhaps. Which African country has received the most official presidential visits? Egypt. Kenya. Uh, Charlotte, Egypt is correct. Uh, You're way ahead in this quiz. Egypt's received 16, towering over second place South Africa and Senegal, who both have four. 
Donald Trump didn't visit the continent at all, although Melania Trump toured four countries in 2018. Kenya has had one visit, which came, of course, from Barack Obama. I will say the only wildlife that you're likely to come into contact with in New York City is a rabid raccoon in Central Park. Do not stand your ground. (laughs) Those things just come closer and closer. You back up, you retreat, do not stand your ground. This has been a public service announcement. That's clearly good advice, given with feeling. Have you been on the receiving end of a raccoon assault? Yeah, you're having a sandwich. You're enjoying the weather. And then this mangy thing sort of appears over your right shoulder with a stringy tail. You don't sit there. You move. You go to the next bench. I've seen bears while I was hiking up in Connecticut. And let me tell you, I did not stand my ground. Those things are big. I pushed my sons down and ran away. (laughs) You pushed them down. You pushed them onto the floor? No. And then ran away? All I had to do was... If it's a hungry bear, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun other people. There's your dad joke. We've come full circle. Okay. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to our producers, Harriet Noble and Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com and we very much enjoy hearing from all of you. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.